I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Hello, I'm Alison Larkin, writer, comedian, narrator, and host of The Jane Austen Podcast. Join me as we embark on a journey through Austen's timeless stories, starting with Pride and Prejudice. The Jane Austen Podcast with Alison Larkin is available wherever you listen to podcasts. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Dew. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. again welcome to the life writing podcast where married authors and screenwriters Stephen barnes and tanana reeve do talk about writing during stressful times breaking into hollywood and balancing life every week we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects even if it's only at the rate of one sentence a day life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing so here we are i'm doing great episode 10 Episode 10. I did. Motoring along. Such a special guest today. We and, really and do. Brian Fuller, who is not only one of like the most influential showrunners in contemporary television, but also a dear family friend. Pushing so, daisies and... I mean, you name it. Hannibal, Hannibal come on. Hannibal. Trek and American Gods. So and he's also a dear friend and just a hugely fun human being. I cannot the, wait to do that. So the head of the Fullerverse, as they call the it. The head of the Fullerverse. That's right. <laughs> so let's talk about the let's talk about the the Du Barnes verse. <laughs> the Barnes Du Verse. <laughs> the multiverse of madness. Yeah. Um, so let's say, you know, we're working with our son. You know, for me, family is the most important thing. So I asked myself, you know, how am I doing with my wife? What am I doing to further my son? I had some specific ideas about that that I shared with you earlier. I'll keep those to myself until yes. they're a little bit more mature. Um, you know, physically, I had a full workout today in the sort of B aspect of my program, which is a little less intense than the A 
version, but it's, you know, moving my body forward. And I have some additional insights about the combination of Qigong and yoga that, you know, who knows, might get into a broadcast one day. But aside from that, it's work. So thank you for getting me into yoga, by the way. It's yoga is the most advanced discipline that is, you know, for for the maintenance of health that is available to the general public. And I, I've practiced and taught Tai Chi for over 40 years. So it's I'm not dissing Tai Chi. It's the difference between an open and a closed chain activity. And there are things that I would get into. But that's for another broadcast. I, I love them both. And I think that that using both together is a really all you need to do then is work on some pulling muscles. And I think you've got everything. So great. how are you doing, sweetie? I'm doing great. Thanks to my great coach uh, in the boxing ring. We have uh, what's it called? The body action system in the body garage that I beat, right. I beat the hell out of it uh, every weekend uh, under the tutelage of Coach Barnes. And I'm very, grateful. <laughs> I'm very grateful to discover the part of myself that enjoys beating the hell out of things and boxing. So thank you. You know, we have... Uh... We have survival instincts, creative instincts, sexual instincts, emotional instincts. And I think that that what I saw in you uh, is you're, you're descended from a line of warriors. Your mom and your dad were fighting for their people, their families, but they were forced to fight indirectly. Mm-hmm. The direct confrontation wasn't going to be part of it. So your dad actually limited himself at how much direct aggressive energy he would let out because he could get killed. He was large and strong. You know, it was much like my mother telling me that if I let people know too much about what it is that I am, and I'm being deliberately- What people? uh, Basically, okay, (laughs) here's the quote that she gave us. Okay, I I was trying to be nice. She said, if you let white people know how smart you are, they will kill you. My my mom said that to me. Asterisk, not all white people. Go on. They wouldn't necessarily completely kill you. They might just cut off your arms and legs. You know, you'd flop around. Uh, <laughs> trying to figure out how to navigate that territory is a very important thing. You are programmed. You're a guided missile. You are programmed to succeed. I've said to many people that you may be the best prepared human being for the life that you've chosen for yourself that I've ever encountered. You're just, you're, you're solid. I was sense. very blessed with my yes, parents. Absolutely blessed. You're what I call a potato. You're just solid. You know, as opposed, most people like bags of potato chips. You know, they're lucky if they're stacked up like Pringles. But one good step and the whole <laughs> thing breaks. You can stand on a potato, you know. So, oh, I see. Okay. So, but one of the things is that indirectness to, you know, you it, non-con, non-direct confrontation. But at the same time, you have all this warrior woman energy that I saw in you. It's like, you are, you're a healthy female animal. And so that energy is natural in you. So the question I had was, well, what stopped it? And so for 23 years, we've been married. I never really engaged you with the martial arts. I wouldn't even practice around you very much. That was your space. I'm glad that over the years, you became a little less shy about at least Yeah, it was was shyness and and, and feeling insecurity and stuff like that. But aside from a little Billy Blanks and Tybo, you know, for a little while there, I've never really shown much interest in that space until I had a great teacher. And oh my gosh, wow. If people see, oh, is this what we're doing now? The sad thing is, I remember when I took that picture, I was not happy with the way I looked in the picture. It's like, when are we ever satisfied with the way we look? It's really, well, anyway, but I'm so glad learn. that you introduced me to Don Callen, uh, yes. your, your martial arts instructor, one of them. I did the uh, warrior 
the, the warrior's journey available at www.realwarriorsjourney.com but the important thing was that she was in many ways the greatest self-defense instructor i've ever met and she connected the physical and the emotional spiritual worlds together it's all three connections and you were her last student you yes. know she was very ill um and uh we would you know, every saturday we would work through zoom and she would ask questions and put us through processes and evaluate techniques and i would hold a shield for you while you practiced the, the physical aspects of things and when she passed away some months back i invited you to i invited you to continue your practice using one of the tools that i had found useful the body action system sort of a, a punching dummy with arms with pads you began doing it kind of gingerly as you know i did not want you pushing yourself too much then you got to the point where you could exhaust yourself then you got to the point where you could pace yourself so you could keep going for 40 minutes then by fo- getting you to focus on your form and your breathing you know, and the footwork, you get, I get, try to give you an assignment every, every time you began to, there began to be longer and longer periods where you weren't just throwing your arms and legs or doing technique. I started noticing a little spark because I've hey. seen that spark in you when you write. I've seen that spark in you when you dance. I've seen that spark in you when you're thinking about doing things for your family. There's that create in another context too that we will, you know. Oh my goodness! Well, let's forbids us from going there. But you can imagine, you know, you know what I'm talking okay. about. Um, yeah. Well, I just have to say I'm so grateful for Don and that short time that I had because she was such a bridge between us. We talked about the difficulties of collaborating. You know, and we're in a 23, almost 24 year marriage now. So there are very few instances where one of us can behave as if we're the coach or the teacher for the other one of us. It can be a little bit awkward. And having Don really sort of open that pathway so that it was very natural for me to accept you as a martial arts guru and coach. And I, after all these years, it's just so much fun. So thank you for that. You're you're so welcome. And I'm hoping to open more fully to letting you coach me in terms of horror writing, understanding how you do what it is you do. But what I wanted to say to you, there was a line in Sex in the City where Carrie was talking about a guy in bed and he didn't have that throwdown, that 100% commitment. When somebody is there, they're not, it's not technique. They're there. They're not writing with technique. They're not thinking about their things. They're there. They're in that world. You were doing that on Saturday. I saw you working out and for several exchanges, several moments where the coach on the video was telling you what to do, you know, you know, right, right, right uppercut, left hook, this, this, that, that, boom. You were there. You were actually fighting. You were not exercising. You were not doing boxing. You were fighting. You were yeah. actually, yes, I could feel <laughs> that the lean in, the throwdown. And it's like, when you see that, that's what you want to coach. The rest of it, it's, it's you're using, you're not teach. you don't want to teach somebody karate. You want to teach. That's them. the boxing ring. There that's, you go. When I hear that ring, I'm ready, that <laughs> bell, I'm ready to go. It's the same thing with the writing. You teach technique until the technique has been forgotten. And then you can bring out the emotion. You know, it, it's the same thing in dancing. As long as you're thinking one, two, three, one, two, three, you ain't dancing yet. You're just, you're counting that. That was, what, what was, what was that? terrible movie uh la la land you know you could tell that they were counting in their, in their minds they were not 
dancing. They were not flowing with it. That thing is that the flow state, the entrance into that is the doorway to all of those advanced states. And I just wanted to say, you actually touched that space on Saturday. First time I've seen you do it. And we're going to build on that. It's going to be fantastic. Thanks so much. So we are super excited about today's guest on the Life Writing Podcast. Brian Fuller has created a number of television series, including Dead Like Me, Wonderfalls, Pushing Daisies, Hannibal, American Gods, worked as a writer and executive producer on the Star Trek television series Voyager, Deep Space Nine, co-creator of Star Trek Discovery. The whole reason you wanted to go into writing, Brian, I hear, is because you wanted to write for Star Trek. So welcome, welcome, welcome to Brian Fuller to the Life Writing Podcast. Welcome, Brian. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's so much fun. Wow. You are the it's... biggest kid I know. And it's, just, it's, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Before we get into uh, talking about writing and your history with writing for television, I just want to tell viewers how I met you and how you came into sort of really our family fold, if, if I'm just keeping it real. I was taping a segment of Eli Roth's History of Horror. And I was in the green room getting made up, the makeup artist, and she was so sure to make sure I knew Brian Fuller's in here. He was in here just before you. Those are his things right over there. Kind of like, don't miss this opportunity, girl. <laughs> you know, and I was actually too shy to say anything to you when I passed you in the hallway. I knew that it was you. And I, I was just like, I get tongue tied sometimes. And you called out first. I loved horror noir. And I was an executive producer on Horror Noir. And then I said, I love Hannibal and left email information in the dressing room as per that, that <laughs> beautician's advice. And sure enough, we have been friends ever since several brunches. And then, uh, Brian invited us to watch movies at his house in the driveway on a big inflatable screen during the pandemic. Life-saving. We, and he also introduced us to people that ended up turning into a job. Right. And I was so incredibly grateful for both the opening of his house and the making of the introduction that I kind of said to Tanana, how can we thank Brian for that? So we decided, let's get him an Oculus VR set. If he doesn't have that, he he will love that. And then he got it. He was enjoying it. He was playing Star Star Wars. Yes. And then I realized that, that during the pandemic, I was prevented from seeing my daughter Nikki, which was breaking my heart because she was living down in San Diego, living by herself during the pandemic. And it was just like, oh my God, this is awful. So we started, a tradi- we bought her uh, an Oculus and we started playing mini golf every week. And so we just kind of had the sense, you know, Brian, Brian's a big kid. Maybe he likes he the Oculus. Maybe he won't think that we're too silly because we have a <laughs> silly family. And so I thought, let's invite him to see whether or not he'd enjoy playing walkabout mini golf. And Brian, you fit right in. It's like almost like every week without fail. We're such a stereotype now. We're like doing the the golf course. (laughs) We really connected with each other and I'm so grateful that you're here. So take it away. Well, mini golf was life-saving during the pandemic. It was a great way to maintain community when we couldn't see each other or touch each other and 
I still remember that brunch. We had a fantastic brunch in South Pasadena and then walked past the Michael Myers house because we're all horror fans. Yes. And it was so nice to meet Stephen through tea. And we just sat down and we talked as writers and, and also kind of openly about our corners of marginalization in the, yes. in, the, in the community in a way that felt like there was a very healthy fat middle to that Venn diagram where yeah. I've had, uh, I've been able to have some very difficult conversations with you and God bless you for them. Cause I wanted someone I could speak to about that intersection of, of LGBTQ issues, black issues. How do, how do I be a good ally? How do I make myself heard? And you always heard me and never took me the wrong way. You always understood I was trying to be the best person I could be. And and same for me. I, I remember, you know, when specifically talking about working on Christine and how the original version was very white and there was no representation and talking about like, okay, if this character now becomes black and then what are the issues around it? How can we prevent any sort of misrepresentation of that? And you were both so wonderful in, in guiding me as you know, mutual allies to like, this is the way to better your allyship without stepping on landmines. And I think yes. that's something that we as writers all need to help each other before it gets to the Twitterverse. Yes. <laughs> and then there's like the, the dog cow. pile. Like if we can communicate with each other and just say, because I remember that there are times when you've reached out and said, hey, we're thinking about having a queer character in this. And what do you think about these sort of, you know, bullet points around that character and having an honest discourse about what feels like pandering, what feels like authentic representation, what feels like just good character work yes. in general. And it's often, there's so many minds in a minefield around the conversation, but like, I think with all of us and what I love about our friendship is that we are storytellers first. Yes. And that's why we know and love each other and enjoy spending time with each other. But we're also providing insights that we wouldn't necessarily have by ourselves. And isn't that what community is? And, and you've been so great about your feedback too, in, in general, uh, story, visuals, so many things that, that you have more experience with than we do. And all this stuff fits together, you know, you take in from the world, you let it cook inside, you follow your, your bliss, your passion, you tr try to understand what the market is, so that there's a Venn diagram of what you want to write as opposed to what you think they want to buy, and then mm. you write there in the center, because you can't just write the stuff they want to buy, because that, that's the way to kill your soul. And you can't just write the stuff that you want to write, because that kills your bank account. There has to be something in between. And I'll tell you that one of the things that I loved the most was the first time that I realized that I was sitting there just jazzing. We were just talking ideas and the ideas are bouncing around. I said, oh, this is his kid talking to my kid, talking to Nana Reeves' kid. This is a friendship. We, if we all met in elementary school or junior high school, we would have been sitting on the bleachers talking story. It doesn't that's for matter sure. <laughs> where we are. And that's the thing that I've noticed about mastery. When you meet a real master, it doesn't matter where you are on the path. What matters is, are you on the path or not? 
you're on the path and let's talk about it. Wow, it's great. What are you up to? What are you doing? And I'm talking about some of the world's greatest experts and things. If I had a chance to meet them and I knew enough about their field to have an intelligent opinion and ask intelligent questions, their hearts just opened. And when I saw that with you, it, it was not just a matter of having fun in that sense. It was also an affirmation at a time when, frankly, I kind of needed an affirmation because I was feeling a little beat up by Hollywood, by things that were going on there. So it's like, oh, it's okay, you know, that that I am doing the things that need to be done and just keep taking these steps, just keep taking these steps. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. And organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. So, so Brian, let's take a walk down memory lane. You are a young newcomer to Hollywood trying to get your big break. What did that process look like for you? If there was any one big, like first break, how did you, how did you land that? 
Well, I was I was very fortunate that Michael Pillar, may he rest in peace, who was a fantastic teacher and advocate for other writers, created this open submission policy at Star Trek for stories because he knew there were so many stories that they would need to cover as kind of a an episodic in nature. Uh, television series that they were never going to be uh, not hungry for stories. So he created this open submission policy. It's how like writers like Ron Moore and Renee Echevarria found their ways into Star Trek and then went on to create their own shows. And so I, I was a Star Trek fan and I knew in college that I could write and it like came kind of naturally, but really the thing that I learned most about writing were the groundlings classes in Los Angeles. I would say any writer, if you're looking for a way- Groundlings are an improv group, right? Yeah, it's it's an improv comedy group. And it's primarily like everybody on, uh, most people on SNL, springboarded off of Groundlings onto SNL. And I remember at that time, like I got to perform shows with Molly Shannon, like in the early nineties and Anna Gasteyer was a writing and screen partner. And Will Ferrell was dancing around in a chicken head and like wow. some little Hollywood, uh, wow. you know, it was. What it was, was Molly really, Shannon like? I love her. The same as she is now, oh, which fantastic. is delightful and authentic and like she hasn't changed from like and she didn't remember me like in 1990 or 91 when we'd done shows at the uh UCB on Franklin and in Hollywood but you know was the same person Jane Lynch there was a lot of fantastic folks there that were part of a community of storytellers that just wanted to tell stories And the Groundlings was was a great place to go and learn in a very simple way how to structure a scene. And because it's sketch oriented, it's a little more digestible than like taking on like, oh shit, I have to write an entire script about this. What was so wonderful about the Groundlings is that you're taking one scene and often it's one scene about, and sometimes a, a character. So it's like a monologue. And, and I think what is such a useful skill to anybody listening that is wanting to kind of connect with point of view and specificity, the Groundlings is a great place. Like fantastic teachers, Kathy Griffin was one of my teachers, uh, Karen, uh, 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 Karen, oh, I'm blanking out on her name. I'm sorry, Karen, uh, but she was um, amazing. Um, uh, Wendy Sterling, uh, you know, these fantastic, Karen Mariama, fantastic teachers, a lot of whom were women, honestly, <laughs> that taught these classes on how to structure a scene, how to be specific about character that are all kind of foundational writing elements that I would recommend for anybody who's like feeling at an impasse with their writing or wants to take it to the next level. A, it's good to sort of think about things from an actor's point of view. 
And B, it's great to just think about things from a character's point of view. What is that character coming into the scene to do? And because it's, it's laser focused on one scene, it really helps you just build all of those muscles. So I would attribute my nascent writer kind of blossoming to the groundlings And then when I saw that there was an open script submission policy at Star Trek, I got some Star Trek scripts, read them. I think also part of the thing with being a writer is you have to read scripts, read good scripts, like watch the shows that you love and then read the scripts and then sort of go like, oh, this very simple kind of layout of a scene actually was taken uh, to the next level by a director's vision working in collaboration with the writers because one of the things that I love about being a writer is that we're kind of first stop with the storytellers everything after writing is interpretive so we're the like like we are the foundational creators of storytelling and then everything beyond that is about interpretation of the words I got two questions for you. One is, is it more of an observation than a question? And that is, I, for years, I suggested that people study acting yep. if they wanted to write. But I think improv is, an, is a higher level of that because, you know, and, and not only that, but I would think that improv prepares you to pitch in Hollywood. Yep. To be able to be spontaneous in the room. Can you, can you speak to that for just a moment? Yeah, I think one of the things that like the, and this is sort of a, a rule in a lot of writer's rooms that I'm in or, you know, heading as a showrunner. And it's, a, it's the basic principle of improvisation, which is yes and. So it's like, you know, it's very easy to shit on somebody else's idea. It's very easy to cut things down. It's sort of like, no, that's stupid. It doesn't work. That's like, well, yeah, if I want somebody to like, have an emotional feeling shoot a baby in the face nobody wants to see that it's easy you know? right, right. like it's 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 kind of a little lazy in, in a way but what's harder and is a better skill particularly in a community of storytelling is the yes and principle so steve if you like say the first line of a story they walked into a room and the pumpkin had taken his head Yes, and the the pumpkin head began to speak to the children in the room and said, I'm going to get myself a horse. And then Tanana Reeve would say, Tanana yes, Reeve, Oh my gosh, I'm so bad at improv. Well, actually, what I, I was just thinking of I, is I wanted to distinguish between yes, and, and what the response would have sounded like if you were just shutting it down. Well, the binary is yes, and dynamics in a writer's room. And then no, but. So right. I want to work with yes and people. And even if you don't agree with the idea or you don't think it works, yes and is a gentle way to turn the ship as mm-hmm. opposed to oh. jerking the wheel. So you're fo- if I said, if you said, you know, the, the, the pumpkin cuts off his head and puts the pumpkin on. If I said no, but the guy takes the pumpkin off and puts his head back on, mm-hmm. then that's not really listening right. to the flow of the story. It's we're right of, back where we started. Yeah, it's we have it's, not progressed. Yeah, it's negating the experience. And I think right. with the even in writers' rooms where it's not a good idea, and there's a lot of that, you know, because everybody's trying to find what the path is. If you start with a no but, then A, you're shutting down somebody creatively and and you may silence the next good idea that's coming out of their mouth. 
as opposed to saying, yes, and that's a good idea. And, you know, if we follow that path down this road, it might not lead to the place where the character needs to go. So, yes, and the character turns the wheel and steers gently off into a different direction as opposed to, no, but I mean, it's also just kind of finding a way to be respectful to other storytellers and not shit on their ideas and shut them down creatively. Because I've certainly been in rooms where a a showrunner or an executive producer would say, what's that smell? Oh, it's Brian's script, you know, type, (laughs) type of thing. And it's just not... That's, you know, it's not helpful. It's, it's no, not, no, it's not necessary. You know, that, that child part of us is the creative part. And that kid is often very, very sensitive, you know. And, and of course. You want to encourage him to come out and play. T, you, you were about to say. Every time I hear horror stories from you, Brian, I get so incensed because you're such a sweet person. <laughs> and I just want to beat them all up now that I'm, I have these boxing skills. But I guess my question for you is personality-wise, why do people behave like that? What are they trying to accomplish? Are they trying to show off for their writers? And if other writers do it, are they trying to show off for the showrunner? What's the, the core of that kind of unpleasant behavior in your experience? Well, I think there's a variety of things. I, I think anybody who has got a foot in the door in any fashion is probably afraid of the door slamming and pinching their foot off, you know, uh, in in some way. So I I think a lot of it is fear. Uh, A lot of it is sort of presentational kind of, uh, you know, posturing for, you know, it's it's easier to climb up if you're climbing up on onto someone else's shoulders, but that also right. involves putting them down. Yeah, and, you can make yourself look bigger by making someone else look smaller. Yeah, and I think there's a, a, a little bit of that. And I've certainly been harsh with notes in my career in a way that I'm not proud of and certainly have learned from, but I, I try to like bury them in some humor and I'm also kind of, you know, very much, like I'll say, like that feels CW and things that feel to me like qualitative in terms of let's not go the CW route because this is not a CW show. If it's a CW show, great, then that's appropriate. If you're trying to do something else, then, you know, but in, in that vocalization, even as I'm saying it, it feels like you're putting down CW or putting down somebody's instinct as not necessarily being a cable show or something that's a little more thoughtful and nuanced or from for a different kind of audience and it's a it's a tricky thing to maneuver because there's a lot of stuff out there and I'm I'm a very critical audience member like I try to keep my mouth shut about a lot of things just because in my in my storytelling brain I'm always in the writer's room and so oftentimes not always successful with it, but you have to consider that there's a, there's a big audience out there and everybody likes different kinds of things. Like there are, there are, are things that sort of feel to me like a little thin or brainless, but if it's starring the rock, that's the fun of going to see a movie and with somebody that's tr- taking you on the journey that you enjoy being with. So there's a lot of components. I have a very brief question. Then, t- then Tanana has a more extensive one. And that is, you talked about, was it Rick Berman? 
Uh, yeah, yeah. By the open script. Why don't we see more of that in television? Well, it was Michael Pillar. Michael. Uh, uh, Rick Berman was was another producer at Star Trek. Right. His name came up recently in another context. That's yeah, yeah. Michael Pillar is sort of like the the creative guy, and really the person who changed Next Generation for the better. Created Deep Space Nine. Was very conscious about a lot of issues, and of course, you know. I think the pilot for Deep Space Nine is one of, is the, it, for me, it's the best Star Trek pilot. And Avery Brooks is my favorite captain, even though he was a commander in the pilot and became a captain. But I feel like there was, it was the first time I sort of saw somebody that was three-dimensional. I think, you know, Kirk, as fantastic as Captain Kirk is, and I love Captain Kirk, there uh, and he got more sophisticated as he went along. In Inception, he was sort of you know this this cowboy diplomat, and Picard felt like he was so shut off from his emotions and kind of representational of what it was to be a man in the '90s that he needed a woman sitting next to him to tell him how he felt about things in Counselor Troy, uh, and it felt like like Kirk and Picard were sort of stifled caricatures of masculinity from their eras. And Cisco was the first time that I felt that I was seeing a three-dimensional character. It helped that he had a son. It helped that he was coming out. uh, Like we got that he was a family man. We got that he was in a loving relationship. We got that he cared about things. We got that he was tormented from, from trauma. And there were, and I also think Avery Brooks is an amazing actor. But why do you think that that (laughs) it is so rare to see an open call for scripts? You you think that that if the idea worked, how come that doorway into Hollywood isn't open everywhere? Well, because of litigation. Mm. I think the, eventually the, the door closed with Star Trek with the open submission policy because if there was a story about the Borg Queen and you had submitted a story about the Borg Queen, yeah, the, the person who submitted the story about the Borg Queen would say, like, I had a story about the Borg Queen and you did a show, an episode about the Borg Queen, like, you stole my idea. And right. I think that's, there's a, like, being, having done this for 20-some years now, I realize that, you know, great minds think alike and there are a lot of like we're, we're all consuming the same pop culture matter in a way that we're going to find ourselves having ideas inspired by the same material in a way that that is is sort of you know not necessarily someone stealing your idea but you having an idea similar to someone else who had uh, a, a likely, a, a, you know, an, an idea that was very close to that, but because of the litigations and because of people not understanding that, you know, like we can sit in a room and talk about story and have a similar idea and go like, oh, I was just thinking that because right. we we right. are building off of the same blocks. But if you're not necessarily in the industry exposed to other storytellers, you might not get that. Like sitting in a writer's room, there's a lot of people coming up with similar ideas because 
we're all building the same story. So because it got so litigious and there were so many lawsuits of people feeling that their stories were stolen. And certainly there were times where I submitted stories where I was like, oh, that's a lot like the story I did. But, you know, I'm not going to say anything about it because what's the what's the likelihood of somebody finding your script in a pile that they've never had access to because it's usually like a reader in a different office you know on a different lot having the same idea that you have or you know it's stolen like right. and the likelihood of somebody having the same idea that you did is very high yes that's a real shame that's just true you know? But I, and we could go off onto that clearly, but Tanana, we've had something that I think is I even more do, interesting. I do, because as I said in the hallway when I first met you, I love Hannibal, and, and I'm not alone. Hannibal has a huge fan base that is still not over the fact that the show only lasted for three seasons. So I want to ask you about Hannibal, because you were able, first, sort of what attracted you to the project, what you wanted to accomplish with Hannibal, how you got away with so much in terms of those visuals on a network television show let's talk about Hannibal a little bit Hannibal like I remember seeing Manhunter and loving the psychological aspects of the storytelling so I watched Manhunter then I went to read the novel by Thomas Harris and that like for me I had the same experience with the Harry Potter's books. I would see the movie, then I would read the book and it would sort of blossom and the world would get bigger. Um, but we don't need to talk too much about those. But with, same, same thing for, for the Thomas Harris novels. Thomas Harris is such a specific writer and such a delicious writer and has such elegant purple prose that just his sentence, I could reread a sentence over and over and over again because it's so masterfully constructed. And so I was in love with the style of the writing and the the delivery mechanism of his ideas was was so wonderful. Um, what do you and, mean by that? What do you mean the delivery me- mechanism for his ideas? The poetry. Like, you know, because essentially he's telling stories about very complex, like he's getting you inside the head of the killer in a way that is very lurid and and seductive and wet in a way that a lot of detective murder mystery stories aren't necessary are are relatively dry but there's something wonderfully wet and sticky about the way thomas harris writes that it gets on you it gets in you it gets underneath your skin and so i i was on a plane and an executive at a studio that just acquired the rights to the book red dragon was like do you think there's a tv show in this and i was like well Yes, like there's there's a great relationship to be had between Will Graham and Hannibal Lecter as two psychologically savvy, damaged individuals. And, you know, it, it, it started from there. It started from wanting to tell a story about same-sex romance, almost from an ace perspective, not intentionally, but it became sort of 
asexual because they weren't fucking at least you know in the show but i think the show had gotten on it certainly felt like it was driving that direction right but i i'm fascinated with damaged men who have a relatively narrow expression of love and fondness for fellow men it, it, like it, and often has to be disguised in some ways or subverted a, in a way that doesn't feel too homosexual you know that but they're they're still love and it's still passionate and you know it's it's like we, we it's very easy to look at say in a show like yellow jackets the power and the kind of queerness of teenage girl friendships that feel fluid and blurry and I see that a lot with male friendships and things like Stand By Me there is a a romance between Will Wheaton and River Phoenix that is palpable and yet it's not activated but they are tender with each other and they love each other and I think tenderness between men is such a beautiful thing and and so rare and so I mean I have my oldest friend I can have a hard time just saying I love you right and that it breaks my heart sometimes that we don't have that but you know our our way of saying that is to insult each other guys are often like that but what about just a hug just just letting somebody cry on your shoulder I mean that that tenderness the thing that you just mentioned there I think guys crave it and it's it's hard it's hard to be that vulnerable with another man yeah it's like it is fascinating like I had a friend a uh, close friend who I love and, and frequent collaborator his father died and he was very close to him and had so much respect to him and was shook and at that point in our careers I was kind of a, a mentor of sorts and he needed a hug and I hugged him and I held him and you know our our necks and our cheeks touched in the embrace and he immediately pulled away. Yeah, he became aware of the warmth. He became aware of the closeness. Not that it was homophobia, but it was like it became something else that, you know, the circumstance couldn't necessarily address at that time. But I was aware of it too, because like my instant thought was like, oh, that feels nice. But then I was also like, this is a straight guy who you know, may not necessarily be able to calibrate the intricacies of those feelings in an intimate moment where Mm -hmm. they're feeling vulnerable. But it was fascinating to me um, that, that because there was, and those are also very erogenous zones. It was a sensual experience. We can have sensual experiences with dogs and cats. Right. And I think that he was, he was, became aware of the sensuality of the moment. Right. And sexuality and sexuality are very close together. And so that then led to an aversive response. Because yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, I make out with my dog all the time. Like, <laughs> it's, like I was going to say, I want to hear more about Steve's sensual moments with my cat, but we'll get on to that <laughs> at another point. Cat Brian, and, and or cat metaphors. Uh, <laughs> oh, hello. <laughs> so, so Brian, in terms of the way you were able to create those stunning visuals, there's a lot to remember about Hannibal. Absolutely, that relationship and that dance is one of the central things people remember and talk about. But also those striking visuals, the combination of beauty and horror, 
somehow packaged for a network. <laughs> is that something you're proud of in terms of how you were able to pull that off even? And how did you do it? Yeah, it's something I was very proud of. It's something that like was almost for me a necessary crutch to transcend a lot of the trappings of traditional television procedurals. Like I, I, which I don't really respond to because I sort of see the math of them, you know, and like I remember watching an episode of House and the teaser was a guy, like the guy was peeing and I was like, if he has blood in his pee and that's the act out, I'm shutting this off. And he had blood in his pee and that was the act out. And I was like, I like, you've got to, you got to work harder to entertain me. So I was resistant to a lot of the trappings of procedurals because the math of it is very obvious to me. Like I'm like, I'm like, okay, this, this is where it's going. I start to feel the cadence because I've seen so much and consumed so much story. I, I want to be surprised. And so initially, at least the visuals were a way to entertain me. If that makes sense, you know, I had to like kind of take it into a place where I was getting something out of the procedural. I had to like gravy the at times dry meat of a crime procedural with a lot of gravy. And that was my gravy. That was my frosting. And, you know, how we got away. With, I remember the conversations very early on with David Slade, who directed the pilot. And he was like, I want the visuals to be ugly and challenging. It's death. I'm not going to glorify death. And I was like, well, yes, we are. So, like, you know, that may not be your agenda, but that's exactly <laughs> where we're headed. So buckle up, buttercup. We're going a different direction. You know, are you glorifying death or are you showing that, are you, are you, delivering some real horror, which is we begin to understand the world from Hannibal's perspective. That's exactly. real horror. And exactly. so it has to be beautiful. He has to take chaos or ugliness and transform it into something beautiful. That allows you to show the abstract way that he looks at human beings. You know, they're, they're potential art materials, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think that becomes the danger of it because we're for me, what I loved about Red Dragon is we got inside Francis Dollarhide's head yes, in a way that created great empathy. And yeah. like it was, and I felt that was the the beauty of what Thomas Harris was doing is that he was giving you the tools to forgive and understand someone who's doing horrific things. And that felt really complex. And well, look, look at his seduction of the blind woman at the photo place. He takes her to a pet doctor. You know, what, what do they call it? A veterinarian, veterinarian who is treating a tiger at a zoo. And the tiger has been anesthetized. And he is encouraging her to feel the heat and the breathing and the purring and the heartbeat of the tiger. You know, and you can see that he is he is wondering, could you handle a the heat of a relationship with a predator? I'm a predator. Right. And of course, she responded sexually. So it's, it was a successful seduction. So that was an amazing visual metaphor. And, and it's genius. And it sort of takes what was happening with Eric Stoltz and Laura Dern and Mask with flavors of ice cream to represent colors and, and sexualized it in a way. It was this fantastic evolution of how do you, and we were talking about this the other day about, you know, Jordi LaForge and being, you know, blind and yet people asking the questions well how can he be attracted to a woman if they can't see them and it's oh, like brother. 
is your yeah. experience so narrow, like yeah. and so insular to who you are, like who you are that you can't think outside of those restrictions. And that says so much about anybody who can't empathize and put themselves in the in the shoes of someone who doesn't look like them or doesn't think like them or doesn't feel like them. And that's going back to how this conversation started is, you know, one of the things that I love about our relationship is that we can talk openly about where we are not necessarily afraid, but aware of our own limitations and working with each other as a community of storytellers to reach beyond those limitations. Wow, that's fantastic. And I'm glad you feel that way because we certainly do feel that way back. And and Brian, not to get too much in, into the weeds with specifics about things that you don't want to talk about, but I've heard a few horror stories from you. And it's interesting that you you can you both have the courage to basically say, okay, I'm done and walk away from things if they're not working sometimes, but also to stick it out <laughs> when things aren't what you want. And one thing we talk about in this podcast is the kind of coping mechanisms writers need, all writers, whether you're trying to work in the minefields of Hollywood or just deal with the rejection of your poor story being rejected yet again. How do you do that? How do you navigate this very difficult terrain and stay centered and balanced and in touch with that inner child who produces your greatest vision? Well, I think tenacity is a skill that we all have to develop and also community because I think it's necessary. If you feel alone and you're not seeking support, it's very dangerous. It's, it's very dangerous in terms of our psyches. And especially if you're waking up at three o'clock in the morning or four o'clock in the morning and you're conscious, but your rational brain is still asleep. And that's when we get all of the bad thoughts, all of the suicidal iterations, all of those things that are detrimental to our child. And, you know, that's sort of like writing in a vacuum is waking up in the middle of the night and your rational self is still asleep. So in having community. And having some- that is one of the smartest things I've ever heard anybody say about the, the artistic life. You're talking about waking up at three or four in the morning and your emotions are awake, but your intellect is asleep. Holy crap. Would you do us the extreme gift of being specific, either about your own life or someone that you knew? I'm not asking to get into into the meat of, of what you're talking about, but I think that some specificity there would be fantastic. You can think of a time that somebody told you they, they woke up, they had this panic attack or something. Just, just if you could be specific, it would be great because that's brilliant. You know, I, I I think as as storytellers who are always taking swings and trying to, as Sid Croft says, turn left when everybody else turns right. And I think anybody who's telling stories from a marginalized place, we're used to, we're, we want to turn left because that's where we live. So, but that makes it harder for us to sell a story or, or be more mainstream, or even when you write a script and you know it's like one of the best things that you've ever written, and yet there's challenges, whether it's corporate politics or the limitations of an executive's imagination or a studio system. There are times when 
I know that I've woken up, woke up in the middle of the night at three o'clock in the morning, at four o'clock in the morning, my rational brain is asleep. My emotional brain is awake. And all I'm feeling is this, like, like, is this the right industry for me? Is this the right place for me? Am I just not suited for this industry because I don't know how to tell stories mainstream as well as I do, you know, a little off center or a little. Like- it's so critical for people to hear someone at your level of success and accomplishment, which is, you know, 99.999% of the people who hear this are not where you are. So for them to know that candor that's successful and the same, I mean, it's like, I, I had the extraordinary honor of being at the deathbed of one of the great writers of the 20th century. And he was asking the same questions about, did, did anything I do matter? Will I be remembered? Was this appropriate for me? You're talking about the universal feeling that you don't fit. That's existential stuff. Yeah. And it is separate from the question of the level of success or the occupation that you're in. That's and w- great. And Brian, what do you say to yourself? Or are there specific steps you take when you're in that place to you move know, through it or beyond it? You know, certainly it's like I, I try to tell myself that part of my brain is asleep. And, you know, the, the part that will save me will will wake up eventually and just wait for it to wake up. And there have been like, it varies, like there's certainly been times where the rational side, and that's why like, don't fucking listen to your brain at three o'clock in the morning. It is a fucking liar. It is the devil. Like it is and not the good kind of devil, like, cause I think there's a good kind of devil, but it's the worst, like, it's the worst part of ourselves that it's all of the negative feedback. It's all of the negative voices who are now like uncorralled and the barn has burned down and the negativity is, is running rampant and it feels so overwhelming in those moments. Certainly I've tried anti-anxiety, antidepressants and things like that. Usually I can rationalize with the, the thought of like, hang on until the rational side wakes up, hang on until there's a reason returns to the conversation because we are vulnerable in those moments that, that reason has left the building. And, but unlike Elvis, it will come back. (laughs) Like it will, like just, as you well know, we could talk about this all day long and we hope that we'll be able to have you back. Yes, please, please. Because you just opened a door into the kind of conversation that takes real courage to even step there, man. That's that's great. I yeah. No, it's good. And all those listeners out there who do get those voices at 3 a.m. And, and mine is usually like at about midnight when I'm trying to go to sleep the first time. So <laughs> it prevents a lot well, of uh, this easy sleep. This is the truth. What, yeah, what it's you the just truth. said with Brian, that insecurity that the person who's never sold a single story feels, do you notice here's a man at the top of his game, same, same insecurities, learning how to deal with our emotions, our real emotions, and then harness them with our intellects, the, the part of us that knows how to do the thing. This is the critical thing. You don't want to disown those negative emotions. That's what powers you. So what Tanana Reeve and I have always done, not only just try to have conversations like, like these with Brian, 
But in the creation of the Life Writing Premium Program, it's like, what are the tools that we have used that enabled us to survive, to keep going, to still be in love with the craft after writing and publishing millions of words? I love what, what Brian said earlier, which is persistence in terms of, and, and sometimes you need a little extra help creating that sense of persistence because life gets in the way. I mean, we're still in a pandemic. Steve and I are homeschooling. You in the listening audience have all kinds of things in your world that are interrupting your dream or that you're allowing to interrupt your dream. So the Life Writing Premium Program has weekly modules that can serve as another one of those voices in your head. And, and that voice is keep trying, yeah. keep going. If, and this week, here's a new lesson to help you stay on that path. If you can commit to writing one sentence a day, if you can get the leverage to get yourself to write one sentence a day, we can get you there because that's the first thing. Writers write. And even if it's just one sentence a day, you're keeping that creative space open. That is all we need. We can, we'll, we'll induce the rest of it from you. You're a writer. You're of our tribe. You're on the same path and we love you for it. So if you'll go to you know, www.lifewritingpremium.com, you'll be able to see what this course is and we and, and what it is that we have for you. We would love for you to be part of, of that community. Brian, you're a gem as yeah, always. Yeah, this will be part one. We'll have to bring you back like when, when you're promoting something or just to, to chat, but thank you so much. Thank you, you for have having a website, me. Brian, that people can get, you know, can, can learn more about you. I think if anybody wants, like, there's a, a Living Dead Guy website that has all the scripts from the different shows. I think it still works. I haven't checked it in a while. But it's a good resource if you're, uh, if you're writing and, and if you want to watch a show and read a script and read a script and watch a show, that's, it's a very important muscle to build up yeah. to tell your own stories. Absolutely. So, uh, that is great. And Thank even if you, you so can't much. find the website, you know, absolutely, that is golden advice. That's the same advice Steve and I teach with screenwriting. Read scripts, watch the shows. Every Saturday night, watch a movie, read the script. Just absolutely. Here you'll know more than most people went to MFA programs. Exactly. Yeah. So listen, guys, it's been wonderful, and we can't wait to see you again. I'm just so excited that Brian was able to come. I'm so excited for all the listeners who, who were here this week to, to hear this conversation. All of you just go out write a sentence a day at least make yourself a hero or a heroine of your own story and thank you so much for joining us everybody you've been listening to the life writing podcast join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams for more information go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.